When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara. I'm a film critic and author of the book of the same name as this podcast. So in this final episode of the season, we're going to be looking at what we can do to change the picture for women in Hollywood and to make the film industry a better place for everyone. So much is on the brink of change. And although profound structural transformation hasn't happened yet, we're beginning to question a lot of the inequalities that we still see in Hollywood today and at least acknowledge that they exist, which is, you know, an essential precondition to actually changing them. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Laura Grange, who's the acquisitions manager for a major broadcaster, and Jasmine Morrison, who's the managing director for the film consultancy and production company Soul Cognition. But first, we're going to be hearing from actress Victoria Emsley, who works with Time's Up UK and the Equal Representation for Actresses campaign, otherwise known as ERA 5050. And she's also the founder and CEO of Primetime, which is a centralised global platform for all women working behind the camera in film. So I asked Victoria why she decided to set up Primetime. Well, I think for sort of a variety of reasons, really. I look at my work as an actor and I sort of... I look to the future and do I see the meaty roles that I want to see, you know, as I age within the industry? And actually the answer is no, you know, we don't, we have a huge issue around ageism within the industry. And I think even now there's just not enough women on screen and behind the camera. And really, if you look at how we change that, to change that conversation on screen, we really have to look at, you know, who's writing, who's directing, who's greenlighting, all of the whole, the whole sort of um, system behind the camera needs to be looked at and readdressed. So that was my angle, looking at the industry and saying, actually, the more women, the more people of color, the more disabled people we have behind the camera, the more we tell those stories, the more and um, we tell stories that are representative of our society, that's what people want to see. You know, that it is what people want to see. And so through my own conversations, through my own experience, and through through coming to Time's Up UK, actually, and, and finding really for the first time a sort of sisterhood of brilliant women who were all sort of leading this fight and talking about what are the practical things that we can do to move this conversation forward. And something I'd had in the back of my mind was to create some sort of space where women could, from different departments, come together, connect and hire each other, be found for work and and really take the excuse of where are all the women off the table. And so when it came up in one of our salon meetings that they wanted to take you know, a list of writers and directors to studio heads, I thought, well, I mean, that's brilliant. And that's exactly what we should be doing. You know, 
And these lists already exist. You know, we do have film fatales, you have Cine Sisters, you have these brilliant organizations that have been working for years already, sort of addressing these specific department deficits. But actually, you didn't have one place where you could get all of the women. And so that's what I thought, hey, if we have all the women from all the departments coming together, you know, that's maybe a very exciting platform where we can start to have um, real change in every department, actually. So, yeah, that was my um, reasoning behind it. And so just just so people are, are clear, basically what Primetime does is essentially allow women in pretty much every role in the film industry to list their skills in this sort of database. And it gives any producer, any head of department, any anyone who's hiring for, to make a film, a list of qualified people in that area. So all of these people who go, I would love to hire more women, but there are simply none who are qualified to do what I need. This is a big thing you can basically drop on the table, metaphorically speaking, and go, boom, there you go. Here we are. Yes, <laughs> yes. I think that's exactly it. You know, it's it's a, a global visibility platform for all of the women working above and below the line behind the camera. Um, as you said, it's it's vetted. It's a vetted platform in line with the guild's entry requirements as well, uh, which has has made it a very interesting sort of top down, bottom up type of solution and has has meant that we've become very trusted very quickly within the industry, which is really exciting to see. So yes, we cover about 260 job titles and having launched at Cannes Film Festival just two years ago, I thought it was going to be a nice little UK business. <laughs> and now we're in over 55 countries. Um, you know, we have BAFTA winners and Emmy winners, Academy Award winners, you know, every, everyone on there, which is just, it's it's really exciting to see everyone take part and, 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 and move the conversation forward, really. I mean, you mentioned Time's Up UK. I mean, I know you're involved with Time's Up, you're involved with Era 5050. You know, it feels like there's a lot of these movements that are all kind of working towards this goal right now. It's absolutely um, the time to be doing this work. You know, the, I, I count myself very lucky. I feel like I'm standing on the shoulders of giants that have come before me. And I do think we, we're starting to see a shift actually within the industry and especially within these organizations of collaboration. You know, there's, there's a general sense that not one person, not one organization is going to change the industry by themselves. It's really going to be a group effort. And so we're really seeing people working together and these partnerships are really the space for a lot of these seeds of change. And I think as well, sort of holding up best practice within these these spaces really encourages people who aren't familiar with the space to come forward and be part of it. You, you told us a little bit about, you know, how your own experience as an actress had sort of inspired primetime, but you know, can you speak a bit more generally about your experience in the film industry? Has it differed for you as a woman compared to maybe your male colleagues? Oh, I just think this is such an amazingly big and interesting question. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, it has changed. It's something that's been sort of at the forefront, I think, of my mind. Also, all there sort of subconsciously, you know, whether I've thought about it or not, it's it's always been there. I mean, I came to the industry, what I perceived as being late. You know, I went to university first. I have a master's in French and Arabic. And then I went to drama school and got my master's in acting from Central. And I remember graduating, I think at 23 and thinking, oh my God, I'm so old. No one's ever going to hire me. <laughs> oh my God, my career is over. <laughs> Even at 23. And I remember being signed by my agent, my first agent, it was just, wonderful but noticing other actors male actors that have come out sort of at the same time as me and noticing that actually you know the roles we were being seen for were different they you automatically sort of had connections with the US 
it was just a different sort of setup. And sort of moving through my career, I suppose, I mean, I can't speak to any, everyone's experience, obviously, but I'm speaking to my experience as a woman within the industry. I have encountered, you know, bullying, harassment, and a number of these other issues that I think come up definitely if you are more of a marginalized voice if you you know an underrepresented creator within the industry yeah I remember I remember being on one set and had a very you know a very strict no nudity contract in place and and at sort of five in the morning having the director come into my trailer and saying actually you know what we'd really like is for you to be topless for this scene and I was like well it's not in my contract and so no that's not going to happen and then you know through a series of conversations I end up in the makeup trailer suddenly having my nipples painted gold and you know and, and these images taken and 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 sent over to the director's phone and you're just it's just a different space I think as a woman I wasn't equipped with a toolbox of of answers in that sense at six in the morning that I felt would not put me in a position where I'd feel like I was potentially putting my job at risk or, you know, my reputation. I mean, also, I, you know, my nipples look very good painted gold. So, you know, I mean, that was, yeah. you know, that was, <laughs> it was wonderful. But at the same time, it wasn't, it hadn't been in my program when I woke up this, in that morning and I wasn't equipped for that. And had it been a, a different body, I think the ramifications would have been slightly different. But for me, it was my body and I, that was my experience it's a very challenging space. And I think it's going to get more, increasingly more challenging as I get older as well. And you face ageism and other things within the industry. So, you know, I think we've a long way to go. But you do have to speak up for yourself so much. And, and you know, historically that has sometimes backfired because women get a, a reputation. We all know the words, difficult, a bitch. You know, these are terms that get thrown about when you ask for essentially what's in your contract. Uh, yes. And and so much worse. And, and, and the problem is, I think that we don't have, we don't have an independent body outside of the industry that is there to regulate and there to keep people accountable. And actually what happens is even if you have representation and even if you have a supportive network around you, there's only so much that, that can, they can do. So we really do need to push as an industry, I think, much more towards a sort of independent body uh, and, and rules. People like rules. I love rules. Give me some rules. I'll probably stick to them. Um, <laughs> um, you know, people need to know how to conduct themselves. And I think that also helps lead to best practice and better work, better, safer environments in the workplace. So, um, yes, give us some rules. Give us an independent body and that will be well on our way, I think. Okay, so talk of rules independent body standard practices also brings up something I was going to ask about the gold nipples earlier, which is <laughs> about, you know, one of the things that seems to have really taken off, it, it wasn't created after the Me Too movement, but it's really taken off after the Me Too movement is a, an increased reliance on intimacy coordinators and, and a few more attempts to be more considerate, more careful, more protective of people on set and, and hopefully, you know, pressure people less at five o'clock in the morning or otherwise into doing things that they haven't agreed to do in advance. So, you know, is that something that you're seeing begin to change that that cultural mindset almost is beginning to kind of come into play? Yes. And it's so exciting. <laughs> I'm so excited. Just seeing intimacy coordinators on set is really, I think as an actor, you feel held. I think as a director, you feel held. It's like, doing an incredibly intricate stunt scene and not having a stunt coordinator there you don't do it 
you know, I just don't, it's not safe. It's not safe practice. And not only do you have to think about the sort of the safeguarding of your actors on set, who may, you know, they're bringing their own things to the set. You don't know what's going on in their personal lives. There needs to be safety. There has to be a set of guidelines and someone there to hold your hand through what can be a very challenging part of a script. I think there's also something to be said about it's, you know, good for the other crew members as well. It promotes a much healthier work environment. And not only that, but also for the editors who are watching the footage back, for every every single person along the pipeline, it creates a much safer space, actually, for the work to really speak for itself um, in a way that isn't damaging to anyone. Which is the main thing, because you don't want anyone... And I have heard anecdotally of you know, people coming away from sets genuinely quite traumatised by by things that have happened, you know, which is the last thing anybody wants or should want. Yes, yeah, I agree. And I think also, you know, the addition of wellbeing facilitators as well, that's um, they're sort of springing up everywhere at the moment. That is also a really great um, step forward within the industry to look after the mental wellbeing of our cast and our crew when they're on set. Um, oh, fantastic. Um, production and post so that's another big thing which I hope we're going to be seeing a lot more of going forward so what kind of things do they do I haven't come across that before that's really exciting yeah it's really exciting so they're basically on they're they're there during pre-production and then they're they're on set essentially as a safe space for anyone who wants to come to them you know regardless of the problem whether it's something that they're bringing in from the outside uh, of work in and don't want to obviously deal with it on set on the floor they uh, can deal with with problems within the sort of inner machinations of the you know the work environment so if there's someone that's being particularly problematic or they're finding it difficult to navigate a space they're again a safe place to go and have those conversations and escalate it to the correct people oh that's fantastic that is genuinely a a bit of a game changer I think yeah I think six foot from the spotlight watch out for them they are a game-changing company Another woman who is determined to make changes in the film industry is Jasmine Morrison, who founded the production and consultancy company Soul Cognition in 2019. Jasmine told me about the company's goals and the work she's doing to improve things for marginalised people in the industry. So one of the things I wanted to do with Soul Cognition was I wanted to empower filmmakers with the knowledge of how film finance sales and distribution works. One of the big things that was really frustrating to me when I was working as a financier is that I would meet some absolutely amazing film producers and directors and writers who had like really great ideas and concepts creatively but had absolutely no idea how film finance works and I always say um, to my clients and the people that I teach that it's kind of like walking into a bank and saying I'd love a mortgage but how do interest rates work (laughs) like it's you can't really go in and show someone that you don't know what you're talking about and for the and to ask them in the same conversation to give you millions of pounds and so a lot of what I do through Soul Cognition is I run courses about film finance sales and distribution for filmmakers so explaining to them you know what is the difference between a tax credit and a tax rebate what is the difference between debt finance and equity what kind of interest rate should you expect what is a legal closing because those are all the types of things that again and again I saw filmmakers get wrong when they were coming into meetings with me as a financier which automatically puts them in a higher risk profile if they don't understand what they're talking about. So I've done a lot of teaching and panels and things like that around, you know, education on film finance, sales and distribution. 
I'm also a consultant for Breaking Through the Lens, which is this amazing initiative that I work with that selects 10 female or non-binary directed films every year to pitch in front of financiers for at, at the Toronto Film Festival. So again, it's like things that I work on that I'm really passionate about and also being able to support creatives and support diversity in film that I don't necessarily see reflected in, you know, things in my standard day jobs. And I think that to a certain extent as well in the UK, I think we're quite nervous about pitching ourselves. And I think especially as women, that, and it's one of those statistics that lots of people do say, is that we are quite nervous about jumping into something that feels outside of our like experience level. I used to find it, I remember what, being in a meeting once and having a female producer come into a meeting with me and saying, so to be quite honest with you, I don't really know anything about film finance. I was like, that's a weird thing to start a conversation with a financier with. But what she actually said to me, the next sentence was probably the bit that shocked me to my core, that she said, I have a business partner and he deals with all of that. And that was probably one of the scariest things I'd ever heard a filmmaker say to me, because I'm like, why? I mean, I'm sure your business partner is a lovely person, but this is not the 1950s and I don't need a man to hold my purse strings. Actually, I need every single filmmaker to be empowered of understanding the contracts that they're signing and how to get their films made. Because what if your producing partner suddenly goes off and says, you know, I just don't think this partnership's working anymore. Does that mean that you're never going to make another film because you don't know how to raise money or don't know how to negotiate a contract? That's really worrying to me because we can lose so much amazing creative power and like energy by people being like, I have this really great short film that needs to be made. Like, I really, really want to tell this story, but it's going to cost five grand, but I've only got two. Okay, does that mean you're never going to make it? That's that's a horrible thing to think. Like, I don't want to suppress storytelling just from the fact that people don't understand finance. So I think, you know, it is really important for us to work together and educate financiers, as, like, educate financiers about the fact that they should also be giving back the knowledge as well to upcoming filmmakers. Has there been a gap between women and men in terms of financing, in terms of who gets the finance, who is trusted maybe instinctively? Um, you know, have there been those kind of unconscious or conscious biases kind of carried through the years? There has been historically. I think it's definitely changing. I would say no one really gets into the film industry with the desire to become a film financier. Like, I think that it's one of those jobs that people tend to fall into. It's in the same way that I would say that, you know, no one ever watches a film and they're applauding at the end of it going, oh, that was absolutely amazing. I should definitely win an Oscar. Do you know what made that film? The Lawyers. Like, no one <laughs> recognises the hard work that goes into making these things happen. Justice um, for the Lawyers? But, okay. <laughs> I mean, all the financiers, that, that business affairs person that worked at, you know, that studio or whatever was brilliant. Um so I do think it is, you know, it, it's one of those kind of slightly to an audience base. It's a thankless job. And as a result, people don't necessarily even know about it. And it's really important that people get more of an awareness. But also, I'd love to see a lot more film financiers out there. Like, I don't know. I think I can probably count the film finance, the female film financiers that I know in the UK on my hands. And of those who are people of colour on one hand <laughs> so again it's not something that is incredibly diverse in terms of the types of people I think it naturally attracts because again you think of the film industry you think of entertainment and you automatically go into director producer actor you don't necessarily think film financier you don't necessarily think sales agent either 
But anyone who's ever worked in distribution or sales has a similar skill set already to working in film finance. But I do think a lot of people also, they want to be creative. So I think that there is often a, a balance of how, what type of finance you even interested in. Because if you're really interested in being involved creatively, then maybe you should go and work with an equity financier because a lot of equity financiers do, you know, have a lot of creative input into projects. Whereas debt finance is a bit more of the, if you're very organised and you like to like sort out puzzles, you're logistically minded, then maybe actually working for a debt financier might be something that's interesting to you. For me, I'd love to see more women working in film finance. I would love to see more diversity in finance generally. And I can, like I said, I definitely see that happening already. It's definitely more diverse than when I started working in it six years ago. I still think there's a long way to go. And that's okay, because nothing changes overnight anyway. But I do think that as a result of there also being awareness of conversations about diversity, you are seeing it more in companies anyway. So I do want to talk about uh, breaking through the lens as well, because I think that's such a good initiative and it's such a, a practical way to get new voices the help that they need. I came on board in 2019 as a consultant when I started my own company just to be able to provide extra support to the filmmakers who become part of the initiative. And I think especially in the last year with the pandemic, it's really given us space for it to breathe and provide more support to the filmmakers along the way. So we have one-on-one -on -one meetings with them about what are you looking for? What can we help you with? Is there anyone you'd like us to introduce you to if we know them? Also, we do, you know, sessions on just establishing, making sure that they have a kind of an introductory understanding of film finance as well. So explaining terms and things like that. We have a pitch consultant who comes in and has one-to-one -one sessions with them as well about finessing their pitch for the event. And we're super, super lucky that Toronto actually had us last year as an official event as part of TIFF. And, you know, we're hoping to be able to do that again as well. So it's amazing to be able to work with these filmmakers. And I have to say that the level of submissions that we get every year now, it's just, you know, year on year, it gets better. And it's amazing to be able to actually see these filmmakers and kind of be with their journey of getting their films made as well. You know, I, I think there's quite a lot of talk in the industry at the moment about the whole conversation about do you want to be defined as a female director? And I think, look, fact is, that's what you are. If you are someone who sees yourself as female and direct films, you are a female director. But <laughs> historically, there are less female directed projects out there. So I don't necessarily want to define someone by their gender or anything like that. But I also do want to see more of those projects get made. And so giving them a space where they are just top class talent and they get to pitch to a room full of financiers, sales agents and distributors and have support along the way. You know, we have filmmakers that reach out to us a year after they've gone through the program and say, I've just got this offer through from this financier. Can you tell me what you think about it? Because I don't necessarily have the expertise to understand what if this is a good deal or a bad deal. So just being able to have that support there as well can sometimes be really helpful for filmmakers as well. So, I mean, it's an initiative that's really, really close to my heart more than anything else. And I'm really proud of Elpida, Daphne and Emily who have kept it going for, I think we're in like year four now, which is just crazy. Because also I don't know where the last four years of my life have gone because it's just gone by so fast. So it's just amazing to see how it grows each year. 
Hi, everybody. My name's Helen. And I'm Kobe. And we're from Flix Watcher, a podcast in the strip media family. We are a movie podcast and we review films that are just on Netflix in the UK. So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix to watch, we're the podcast for you. We have guests on from other podcasts, big and small, just like these guys that you listen to now. They choose the films and we rate them and discuss them with our unique scoring system. You can find Flix Watcher on any podcast app by searching Flix Watcher. That's F-L-I-X Watcher. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. If I may be so honoured to have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors, Meryl, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. The filmmakers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the cinematographer, the, the composers, the songwriters, the, 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 the designers. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Ms. Boyne. Okay, look around, everybody. Look around, ladies and gentlemen, because we all have stories to tell and projects we need finance. Don't talk to us about it at the parties tonight. Invite us into your office in a couple days, or you can come to ours, whichever suits you best, and we'll tell you all about them. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Inclusion rider. And that was, of course, a clip from Frances McDormand's Oscar acceptance speech in 2018 when she was given her second award for Best Actress for the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Now, inclusion riders, or equity riders, are provisions in an actor or filmmaker's contract that require a certain level of diversity in the cast and crew. These kind of targets and quotas are beginning to be implemented in one form or another across the film industry, requiring awards-eligible films and production companies to have a certain proportion of women, of people of colour, of LGBTQ plus people or people with disabilities on their projects. So when I asked Head of Acquisitions Laura Grange about the things that give her hope for the future, she spoke to me about the increased use of these quotas. I think for me a big thing that's given me hope that it will change is that working in acquisitions and seeing broadcasters and studios actually implementing quotas. And as much as I'm torn with the idea of saying, oh, you have to fulfill quotas, because I find that sometimes it means, again, it's token. Um, But I I feel like that's helped already uh, change to say, we are going to have more diverse representation on screen and behind the camera, which again, is really important. I'm hoping that once we go back to a more normal world, there will be more events and conferences to bring those two worlds together because I think there's been a lot brewing. I've spoken to quite a few people and Blacklist is is one of them where there's been these great ideas of creating databases and creating sort of platforms for young talent and now we sort of need the opportunity whether it be at markets or, or sort of events where we all get together meet those people and start expanding our you know our actual contact list to say i've got a film we should we should get together and actually put producers in touch with dps and and, and new cinematographers um i also think people who have got platforms to discuss 
these things. It's it's great to see that they are tackling these issues. I don't know if you saw John Oliver talking about black hair and the importance of having hair and makeup people who can actually deal with black hair on set because it's all well and good to have black women in films. I think it, there needs to be more. But again, you have to be sensitive to the fact that not every hair and makeup can do that. And so if you're going to, you have to then think about your crew and sort of bringing those subjects to light is so important and shining a spotlight on them so that the entire industry takes a beat and goes, we've got to change the way we do it. Just to get a sort of general overview for people who may not be familiar with the process, you know, how do organisations decide essentially what films to buy? What is going? What are people going to be watching? What is going to work for them? I'd love to say that there is a formula or there is an actual uh, specific way of deciding. There isn't. Um, <laughs> it is very subjective. Uh, I will say a lot of it is if we personally like it or not. The idea is that we have experience knowing a bit in the industry what works and what doesn't work. But I think it's it's a mixture of uh, is it original? Is it fresh? Is it something different that hasn't been seen before? Is the genre something that is particularly popular at the moment? Is the talent particularly popular? So it's, it's a combination of things. And it's it's why often there's a team process when, when acquiring, because you need sort of opinions from different people, because something you think might be really popular, um, someone else might find offensive or might say, actually, I think I saw that this film didn't do as well, so maybe we need to tread carefully. So it is definitely a, a team effort. A, a bit of a process. And, and what about those teams? You know, historically, I'm guessing, certainly in a lot of the studios I know, a lot of them were, you know, white straight men as a majority. Is that is that still the case or is that something that's beginning to change? It's changing. It's definitely changing. I mean, I'm currently working with an all-female team, which is amazing. It's slow and it's very much uh, company to company and country to country. There are some places... I know when I was on the sales side, obviously met a lot with um, acquisitions people. In some countries, it's all men um, and you can't get away from that. And I think, as I say, it is changing. I think as, as we're finding new generations are, are climbing the ladder, but it's, it is still very male skewed. And therefore, I think the, the content that is then acquired reflects that. And so that kind of is part of this process through the whole industry, isn't it? That the question of funding and distribution then affects who gets to make films, what sort of stories we tell, what kind of subjects we tell stories about, right? Very much so. I think there is a thing that because so much of our industry is, is controlled by, and I do apologise for you saying this, but white men, the content then reflects exactly that because whilst we... We want to find what we say are fresh and original ideas. There is still a panel uh, that that like specific things, hence why we have action films with hunky white men in the leads, because that's what they think is, is, is what we want to see. Now, it does work, so there is still a very big audience for that. <laughs> I love those films. You know, I will take any of the Hollywood Chris's. Exactly. It's fine. Exactly. So I think it's... It is changing, but it's it's finding how that'll change. And I think it's it's people and certain companies are trying to make room, sorry, for these new voices and new new people, but it's it's a process. And do you think that goes to not just what's on screen, but what's behind the scenes as well? You know, so 
directors, you know, we're much quicker to call male directors auteurs, you know, female directors find it a lot harder to kind of break into the industry, make an impact. And, you know, people of colour and women of colour in particular, again, find it harder to kind of get that attention. So is there a, you know, is there an attempt to kind of think more broadly? I think is that is that beginning to happen now and people are going to say, begin to say, you know, hang on, we haven't seen any stories about, I don't know, disabled people, or we haven't seen any stories about black women recently. What what can we find in that arena? Do you think that's beginning to change? It is. I think it's, it's again, it's very slow. Um, I know that a lot of the, in the UK, a lot of the broadcasters have now got targets um, to diversify their slate and who they work for. I think part of the issue is also inevitably producers, directors, will always go to the same people. And it's it's understandable. They've worked with them. They have the trust there that they'll do the job they need to. And again, it's not to be uh, pointing fingers and, and being rude to anyone, but there is an amount of laziness there where it's like, well, it's, it's I'll just go to the people I know I can work with. And unfortunately, that means that their, their circle is always the same. And what needs to happen, and it's, it's very difficult, we fight against it daily, is telling them, no, we need to break that and you need to actually expand your group and approach uh, people like the Blacklist in the UK or people like that who can offer young talent and sometimes experienced talent uh, and crew that can diversify that that uh, that film. But it's, it is a very long process and I think it's, it's, it's breaking patterns that are just people are used to a certain process. And, you know, to an extent, the people who have the most, you know, experience in the industry right now are probably these people and therefore they are probably the first ones called for a lot of these jobs. So, you know, it, it's it's not it's not a grand grand conspiracy. It's I always say it's it's a sort of just human nature kind of just being human, I think, to, to some degree. I completely agree. And I think I think also we we need to sort of acknowledge that it's small steps and it's it's, you know, that. It's hard for a production company or a studio or anyone to to trust that a completely green team is going to be able to deliver a film of the size and quality that it needs to be. But I think what needs to happen is if we are going to put, as you say, an auteur director or or someone that has that talent but is a white middle-aged man, then we then need to all request that he surrounds himself with more diversity and more women and more people of colour and disability, etc., to make sure that they can then grow and become those people with experience that then get hired later down the line. Absolutely. And, and do you think a lot of these conversations are happening because of things like social media, because of, you know, Me Too, because of Oscars So White? You know, it has all of this brought about these this awareness that people have to change? Yes, I think it has. I think it's, it's I'm going to say something so cliche, but it has really highlighted that TV and film is really a mirror of society. And unless we change that, society won't change. Because something as simple as I was noting the other day, every action film or big film where there is, even if he isn't the lead, there is a president per character, he is always male. And why is that? Why is, and I know TV is a little bit more further along with that, but in film, for example, there hasn't been, that I can really think of, any film where there's been a president character that has been an all prime minister character that hasn't been male. And so then that trickles down to, 
it's it would feel weird to see a woman in that role in real life. And so without changing the way we do things on screen, it won't change the way people do things in society. And social media is sort of that bridge between the two to say, hang on a minute, we we need to change this to change to change the way people think. So you're like me, you think that film can shape society as well as the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You speak to anyone and they'll say they watch film and TV. So I, I don't know anyone, unless they don't have access to it, that could deny that what they see on screen doesn't affect the way they think or the way, even if it, they don't agree, it sort of is raises the conversation and raises those arguments. And so you have to, as broadcasters, as studios, etc., we have a certain amount of responsibility to be part of those conversations. One of the recurring themes on this podcast has been the recognition that things are improving, but there's still a huge amount that we need to change to make things better for women and other marginalised groups in the film industry. So I asked Jasmine about the hopes that she has for the future. I mean, 100%. I, I'm super, super positive about the future. On a day-to-day basis, it can be frustrating because nothing is going to change overnight. And that's okay because actually change overnight tends to not stick. And actually we want long-term change that sticks. So I'm okay with seeing micro changes that I can look back over a month or two months and see. But I do think there's kind of two main things that need to kind of keep going forward. A, when it comes to the big decision makers they need to keep creating space for new filmmakers. It needs to be, you know, in a way that's supportive, that allows those filmmakers to actually be responsible and hold positions of power in their film as well. So things like completely understand when producers want to see more established producers working together with new filmmakers, but also let's not take any power away from the actual producer who bought that project in the first place. So I think that there's things that need to come from an industry perspective and the decision makers, but also on the other hand, filmmakers need to keep educating themselves as well. And I think, you know, for me, one of the big things is that we can constantly be bettering ourselves by understanding other people's job roles as well. I also asked Victoria Emsley about the kind of changes she wants to see going forward. I would say just just whack a lot of women, people of colour, disabled people, neurodivergent people in positions of power. Like put them at the top, put them in the C-seat positions. It really has to be a top-down, bottom-up initiative because, you know, I think a lot of productions say, oh, you know, we, we're doing really well with our, our, our gender balance. Um, you look at our camera department, you know, this, we've got a woman trainee and you're like, great, I'm glad that you're funneling people up. But really, where, where are your HODs? You know, it really has to be a top-down bottom-up situation so and everyone deserves to see themselves represented at every single level uh, so I think yeah a quick fix would be you change some things around at the top you know let it filter down a bit <laughs> absolutely decision makers could be uh, are still non-diverse I think it's probably fair to say and, and how do we make these changes kind of permanent what do we make need to make sure none of this goes backwards that it isn't dismissed as some kind of post me too fad and is actually a lasting change in the industry you have to realize that the work is being done. It's not just on the red carpet. It's not just from event to event. The work is being done on a daily basis. And also what I'm finding as well from working with Times Up UK is that the more you put in, the more you can actively change the path of the industry. And, you know, everyone has something to do. Every single person 
out there can play their part in making the industry fair and more representative for themselves and for other people, more importantly. So I think what we need to see and we need to shift towards is much more of a sustainable culture of making these changes sustainable. It's making sure that we do hire more women, more people of color, more disabled people, but also ensuring that those systems that are there, that have hired them there, give them the support that they need so that they can actually thrive within those jobs and within that environment. I think that's fundamental, actually. And like I said, again, more collaboration, working together and, and celebrating, we have such incredible data now that shows, you know, female uh, female pen projects tend to quadruple their return on investment, especially in budgets over 20 million. And so you just like, you know, the data's there. Let's let's do it. Let's, there's, no, there's no more excuses now. No more excuses. So, look, as we've heard there, there's still an enormous amount of work to do to get to something like an equitable film industry. Women are still a tiny fraction of directors, of cinematographers, of composers, of many, many other important roles on film sets. Women still aren't being given the same opportunities as men to lead films, to be the focus of our storytelling, to be the focus of the the kind of myths that we create for one another. And it's much, much worse for women and other people who are not you know, straight, cis, white, able-bodied, conventionally attractive, and all the rest. We haven't even really begun to have serious discussions about changing the picture for people with disabilities who remain wildly unrepresented on the screen in every single possible role, given the percentage of the population that at some point in their lives will face a disability, they are a fraction of the people on screen that they should be. So there is an enormously long way to go. What's encouraging to me, and I think to all the women that I spoke to, is that we're at least beginning to have these conversations. We're at least beginning to acknowledge that there is a problem that needs to be addressed, because that may seem like the least possible (laughs) that anyone can do, but it is a precondition to doing everything else, and it did not exist, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. People have not acknowledged that anything needed to change in the past, and therefore nothing did. So while we still have a long way to go to get to anything like parody in the film industry, to get people on screen who look like people in real life, I mean, okay, they can still be better looking than the rest of us, but in terms of demographics, it would be nice if they looked like a population of human beings that looks like the one we have on Earth. So there's a long way to go to get there. But having these conversations, keeping it in our mind, remembering that straight, cis, white, able-bodied male is not a human default setting and should not be a Hollywood default setting either, is a necessary precondition to doing everything else that we need to start doing. So thank you to my guests today who are out there on the front lines really trying to do the work. Thank you to Laura Grange, to Jasmine Morrison and to Victoria Emsley and to all my guests this season on the show. It's been an absolute eye opener and an education for me and I hope for my listeners as well. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. And we've almost come to the end of this episode and this season of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here are our guests' recommendations for underrated female-led or female-directed films that you may have missed. Here's Laura Grange. I cannot recommend it enough. It's called Police by Mai Wen. And it was in Cannes, I want to say in 2011, I think it was. 
And it is about the police force in France that deal with children, whether it be sexual abuse or domestic abuse on children. It's a very hard watch, but she took a subject that is really tough, but looked at it from the very emotional perspective and the drain that it is on these officers. Here's Jasmine Morrison. And so one of my favourite films of all time is actually a film called Two for the Road, which has Audrey Hepburn and Albert Finney in. And I honestly just think that Audrey Hepburn's character in that film is amazing. Like, I do just think it is, it's the portrayal of a marriage over a couple of decades. But I do think that her character just feels so authentic in that film. And here's Victoria Emsley. It was Daisies by Vera Chitilova. It's this beautiful, beautiful film. Two women, both called Marie, on screen. And there's a lot of there's a lot of symmetry. There's a lot of a just wild, abstract chaos. So you can find a list of all the films recommended by our guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book will be released there in December. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women vs. Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. And thank you all so much for listening. You just heard a Stripped Media production. <laughs>